Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 21. One. This is amazing, Francis marveled. I've never seen anything like it. I never dreamed that I would. She gazed down at the village the way someone else might gaze at a masterwork in an art museum. So overwhelmed with emotion that Sal wondered if the junior librarian might actually swoon. Once upon a time, Middle Coombe had been a picturesque seaside town, maybe a few hundred brightly painted houses dotting verdant mounds bounding down to the ocean. It didn't look much like the pictures on the postcards anymore. For one thing, there was the shimmering, rippling border that surrounded it like the shell of a snow globe. And that was the least strange thing about it. Inside, the town was leprotic with magic. Nobody has seen anything like it. Asante was substantially less enthused than Francis. I'm not sure there's even been an outbreak this widespread since that matter in Texas back in 1896. Sal gazed down at the village with a professional eye, trying to get a handle on damage done and possible hazards. And survivors. Surely there were survivors. What happened in 1896? A whole row of houses looked normal, but the road outside glistened and curved like loops of living intestine. Where there might have been pilings near the shore, a flock of majestic creatures stood motionless in the ocean. They could have passed for flamingos if they hadn't been 15 feet tall and covered in scales, not feathers. Demon rampage. Eyewitness accounts said the thing was 100 feet tall. The history books say it was tornadoes, of course. Asante pulled her pack out of the van. The streets of Middle Coombe were completely empty. Sal wasn't sure just how much traffic there should be in a small fishing village off the Irish Sea this time of year, and maybe none was simply par for the course. Even she didn't find that train of thought convincing. We already knew this was going to be a big deal, Sal said, but we still have to do the job. What's the plan? We save every life we can, Menchu said. We'll need to get everyone safely out of there. A plume of oily smoke rose from an unseen source in the town, reached down like a tentacle, and picked up one of the not flamingos. This'll be fun, Liam said. He scowled at the town. Grace stretched out her quads. It sure will be, she said, and she sounded like she meant it. The not a flamingo victim flapped maniacally as the smoky tentacle dunked it under the water, held it there for long moments, 
and then wafted away as if it had never been. A sheen of pink scales floated to the surface and washed against the shore. Well, Sal swallowed hard. This is fine, we can handle it. I'm not so sure. Manchu double-checked the antique silver cross at his throat and the book shroud in his bag. The first to protect him from being affected or infected by magic, the second to bind whatever the magic had come from. Our priority is to get survivors to safety as fast as we can. I'm going to let Monsignor and Julie know that we'll definitely need Team Two involved, and he rubbed his forehead. I'm going to suggest you have Fox send in Team One. Do you think the network is still here? Sal asked. Asante stared hard at the ripple surrounding Middle Coombe. The sky wasn't blue on the other side of it. We don't need Team One. I'll find a way to deal with the network if we run into them. Liam's jaw worked silently before he took the bait. How do you reckon? We can't be sure if this particular effect is deliberate or not, but since they've been such a persistent thorn in our side, we've learned a lot about how they operate. I've learned a lot, Asante said. If I can find their base of operations, I might even be able to shut them down for good. No one has to die. Manchu looked unconvinced. Asante. Might, Asante repeated. I'll need to investigate to be sure, but they've finally played their hands, so maybe we can end the network here. If we can cut them off at the knees now, isn't it worth some risk? Perhaps. Arturo, you know what will happen if it's down to team one. These people, their homes. Something heavy passed between Manchu and Asante. I know, he said at last. I'll recommend that team one be activated just to watch the perimeter and make sure nothing gets out. It's a long ride out here, and if things take a turn for the worse, we'll want them close by. But they'll be on containment duty only until we're out of options. When will that be? Sal asked. We'll know it when we see it, Manchu answered. Grace, Sal, come with me. We're going to seek out survivors and send them out to safety. Liam, go with Asante and Francis to search for the network's base of operations and figure out how to stop this. No heroics, don't engage directly with the network and send any survivors you find to us. Let's save as many lives as we can. Francis trailed Sal and Grace toward the shifting edge of the village while Asante prepared her gear at the van. She peppered the team with questions, bare enthusiasm telegraphed in every syllable and gesture. Is it common, she asked, for there to be such a visible dividing boundary between the areas affected with magic and those that are clear? Nope. Grace stepped over a fallen tree without breaking stride. But these manifestations, changing in ambient lighting, changes in material behavior, even gravity, you've seen all of them before? Francis hurried to catch up again. Grace rounded on Francis. This is not a toy. What? Francis stopped. You seem very eager. To you, this is all a curiosity, all of your theory made into practice. But lives are on the line right now, even yours. This is not a toy to be played with. Francis raised her chin. I know that. You think you know that, Grace said, but you don't. Liam stepped between them as if from nowhere. Grace, nobody's forgetting magic is dangerous. I'm sure Francis isn't happy to see suffering either, but you have to admit it does look interesting. That's how I get you. Huh, Sal hadn't even known Liam had been watching. Yeah, like a predator, Francis added, luring in the unwary, but I'm not the unwary. Don't worry, Miss Chen, I'm as aware of the danger as you are, maybe more. Like hell you are, Grace muttered, and she didn't pursue the argument any further. Manchu caught up with them. Is everything all right? He asked. Fine. 
Grace turned her head away and her hair swished like an angry cat's tail. Manchu paused and scrutinized each of them in turn before continuing. Good, we don't have any time for friction. Monsignor and Julie has already set the wheels in motion. Team One should be here in about six hours to watch the border. Until then, we need to get as many people out as we can. Are you ready? Ready as I'll ever be. Sal sized up the border of the magical zone. Who goes first? Grace pushed Sal forward. You're the one who asked first, she said. So today, you get to be the cannon fodder. Up close, the border was harder to see, just a bare shimmer of strangeness. You could walk right through it and never be sure when you were on the other side. But when Sal stepped forward, she had no doubt when she'd passed through into a wellspring of raw magic. The sky had changed color to the salmon it had been in the orb-created bubbles outside of time. There, she had felt sluggish, but here she felt invigorated, faster, stronger, more awake. Every inch of her skin tickled and popped as if the air had been carbonated. Every breath tasted like adventure. She turned back to Liam and Menchu and gave them a double thumbs up. Come on in, she said. The water is fine. Operation Search for Survivors began with the houses along the main road leading into town, closest to where they'd parked. Sal took one side of the street and Menchu took the other. Grace followed between them, ready to race to either side if the situation should take a turn for the violent. After a while, Sal started to think she'd welcome a little healthy violence as an alternative to relentless failure. Sal and Manchu banged on the door of every house they passed, the houses that still had doors. Police, Sal shouted. We're here to get you out. Nobody answered. Sal peered in the windows, or at least the windows that were still windows, and not thrumming purple membranes or warty knobs of tree bark. She didn't see much of anybody. Well, no survivors, even assuming that any of the clots of flesh and hair she'd seen inside had started out as people. This is looking bad she muttered. She raised her voice to call across the street. Father Manchu, what if there's nobody left? What if we're too late? Manchu stepped reluctantly away from the last door he'd tried and down the little house's steps. There has to be someone we can save somewhere. Keep knocking. There was nobody on the first block or the second. They assembled in the middle of the street to plan out the next part of their route. When they turned a corner onto the third block, they came across the beast. The creature didn't notice them at first. It was the size of an SUV. Hell, maybe it had started out as an SUV, judging from the wheels it had in place of legs. It was squat and bulbous. Its body rippled with ears in a variety of sizes from a variety of species. Horns jutted out in the spaces between the ears. And not just animal horns, instruments too. The bell of a dozen tubas, trumpets, and clarinets mingled with ram's horns and elaborate deer antlers. What the hell kind of demon is that? Sal asked. Unbidden, a name for it surfaced from her subconscious. Horatio Hornblower, of course. At her words, a dozen or so of the ears pricked up and swiveled toward them. The thing emitted a prolonged brassy wheeze. Then Horatio did a quick three-point turn and headed straight at them. All those ears might mean it was sensitive to sound, Sal thought. She screamed at it, shoo, go away. The monster quivered at the noise, shrinking down to something more like a family sedan and backed off a bit. Go on, get lost, Sal yelled and stomped her feet. Manchu joined in, flapping his arms and shouting in Spanish. Grace just watched the thing, knees bent, waiting for Horatio to make a move. 
The noise was clearly upsetting to the creature. It rolled slowly backward, collapsing into itself. It shrank all the way down to the size of a smart car. Yeah, get out of here, Sal clapped her hands and whistled. Horatio rallied. It opened what used to be its hood, revealing a bottomless chasm full of jagged teeth. It let off a billowing belch of steam, then puffed back up to its original size. And then it charged. Part of Sal's brain stood gaping at the sight, but muscle memory kicked in and her body did the right thing. She dove toward Manchu, pulling him out of the way. Grace leaped onto Horatio's roof, feet planted firmly between a curling bison horn and a ridged spear like an oryx's. She punched straight down into one of its ears. The monster grew angry. It shrank and grew like a set of bagpipes puffing up to the size of a truck. Then it zipped in reverse and struck a street lamp, trying to throw Grace off its back. Grace tumbled into a neat somersault, just out of the way of the falling pole. The car thing lined up again, ready to make another pass toward Grace. Just as Horatio's front bumper passed over the broken end of the light pole, Grace slid her knee under the pole and lifted it hard, like a lever. The broken end went up under the car, the light went down. Horatio flipped over onto its back, blaring its outrage in discordant timbres. It rocked like a turtle, unable to right itself. Grace hefted the lamp pole and speared the car in its soft underbelly with it. Horatio shrieked a terrible sound, an orchestra being murdered, and then the cacophony died away into nothing. Sal could only hear herself pant. Grace stepped away from the corpse of the monster and dusted herself off. That might explain why nobody is out for a walk, she said. And then Sal saw a flicker of movement down the street, a pale face looking outside, a door swinging closed. There, she said, and took off running as fast as she could. She slammed the door open, went through, and emerged into a pub. It was packed. Liam shifted uncomfortably as Asante and Francis readied themselves to perform magic. The two of them sat on a fallen log well outside Middlecombe's bubble of magic, while Liam hovered behind them. It wasn't a big spell, they had promised, a simple locating charm to help them find where the network was hiding in this town more quickly. Francis tutted about Liam's close-shorn head. It's a shame, she said. This would be much more effective if we could use the lock of your hair. Your connection to the network is still very powerful. I'll be sure to grow it out the next time my old mates start dabbling in black sorcery. Liam recrossed his arms. He'd been more at peace while he could still see the rest of his team knock on doors in their march into madness, but they'd long since turned a corner. Now, he couldn't decide if watching Magic on Wild was better or worse than watching the more domesticated kind. Asante sprinkled water into a copper cup. Liam does have other hair, she said. A few of those would do the trick. Liam made a strangled sound. Like hell are you gonna? But blood will be even more effective. Oh, excellent point, Frances brightened. She unzipped a little case from her bag and took out a tool that looked like a plastic pen. She fiddled with it. Asante set the cup down on the log beside her and reached toward Liam. Give me your hand. Wait a second, how much blood are we talking about? And does Father Manchu know about this? A sound drifted toward them, a curious blaring like an orchestra's trumpet section dying all at once. They all ignored it. Francis screwed the plastic pen together again. It's just a pinprick, Liam. I do it three times a day. It doesn't really hurt. It only feels like being snapped by a rubber band. She handed the pen to Asante. My objection is not over whether it's gonna hurt. This is doing outright blood magic. You can't shuffle your feet and tell me it's harmless. Liam, do you want to try to stuff the network or not? Masanti was cold, implacable. 
He missed the days, not so long ago, when he thought she was all grandmotherly warmth and unbridled curiosity. Just one more lost illusion. He took a deep breath. And you think this is the only option? We could go from door to door like the rest of Team 3, asking if anyone has seen a woman matching Christina's description. Francis adjusted her glasses. And it's looking like there aren't that many people home right now. At Liam, this isn't the only option, but it could be substantially more efficient, and time is not on our side. Liam took a deep breath, let it out, and gave Asante his finger. Francis was right. It did feel like being snapped by a rubber band. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Two. The teeming patrons of the Harp and Spear hardly looked up when the Team 3 search and rescue trio walked in. The drinkers were all crowded onto benches, slouching on bar stools, or hunched over the bar itself. Nobody was standing away from the bar. Sal noted. Unusual. People usually clustered in little groups to chat in every free bit of floor space where they could get a little extra elbow room. It was quieter than it should have been, too. The hushed tenor of conversation seemed more fitting for a library than for a drinking establishment. There was no boisterous laughter. No laughter at all. And, Sal realized after a moment, not one of their glasses had beer in them. Only half of them even had a pint glass to begin with. Come to think of it, the bartender was missing too. Manchu and Grace followed her in before she could ride that unsettling train of thought to its destination. Good, there are people still here. Manchu's relief was palpable. 
He addressed the crowd. Ladies and gentlemen, we know there are some strange things going on in your town, and... The crowd didn't even look up. They continued their quiet conversations, heads bent together. Grace tensed light on the balls of her feet. Something isn't right. Sal coughed apologetically, then climbed onto the bar. Attention, she said in her very best, loudest voice of authority. The one that stops civilians in their tracks every time. I need your attention, please. Nothing. Sal clapped her hands. Listen up. Your lives are on the line, people, and we can- She trailed off. The crowd's non-reaction was complete. She whistled the piercing two-fingered variety she'd learned in the police academy. An older gentleman with a fringe of white hair tipped his head to the side as if he were trying to hear something from far away. Beyond that, nothing. What's wrong with them? Sal asked. She slid down from the bar. Manchu was grim. Magic had to work one way or another. They don't see us. Grace snapped her fingers in front of a patron's face, a thin-nosed woman with close-cropped hair and a hand-knit sweater. Hello, anybody home? The woman frowned, waving as if trying to shoo a fly, and continued talking to the round-faced matron across from her. There has to be a way to get their attention. Sal cast around for ideas. We could set fire to the place. She wasn't quite sure whether Grace was serious. We could just haul them out, she mused. Manchu grimaced. This is no time for jokes from either of you. I'm not kidding, Sal said. What if we just grab someone and try to get them out of the magic circle? I guess it can't hurt to try. Manchu nodded toward the person closest to the pub door. A thin man of middling years, ginger, but graying, in a Metallica t-shirt, black jeans, and a woolen cap. Got him. Grace put her arms around his waist and pulled. The ginger man's mouth opened. It was bottomless and empty, like Horatio the car had been. The man screamed like a thousand modems dialing. His chair legs snapped away from the floor, gushing blood. But the seat of the chair stayed attached to the man's rear. Every head in the bar swiveled to look at them in perfect unison. System fault, they said in chorus. Rerouting. Grace tried again to separate the man from the chair, even while the chair's leg stumps spurted blood. It's all one piece, she said, setting the chair down again, like he's become a part of the furniture. Blood from the broken chair pooled and ran in the cracks between the floorboards. The man closed his mouth, curled up his knees, and whimpered, why, 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 why? Sal didn't put her fingers in her ears, but it was a close thing. What happened to him? Aren't they all like that? She pulled tentatively at one man's elbow, leaning on the bar, but it was firmly stuck there as if he were a part of it, which she apparently was. What's going on here? An answer came, expected or not, from every mouth at once. We are at the hive now. Manchu remained impressively calm. The hive? Are you saying you're all a part of some kind of network? Sal's hands dropped to her sides. They're all a part of the network. Let's keep looking, Manchu said. We can't help these people right now, but if the houses were affected piecemeal, surely the people were too. And if Asante can figure out how the network did this, maybe she can reverse it. Everyone could still go back to normal. Let's hope. They left a trail of bloody footprints behind them, and for a dozen or more feet, once they left the pub. Liam's blood was not as good a beacon as Asante and Francis had expected. At first, everything had gone swimmingly. 
Liam's blood went drip, drip into the cup. There was a disconcerting burst of steam, and then Asante had taken off toward the town like she knew precisely where she was headed. But the strong start had fizzled before long. They'd walked past the carcass of some slain earwheel creature, Grace's work, if Liam wasn't mistaken. And then they dodged horrors from oozing signposts to grasping shrubbery, heading toward the water. But since then, they'd circled the same four blocks for ages, while Asante stared into her copper cup and argued with herself under her breath. That was bad enough. But there was worse. Liam could feel the presence of magic all around him, like an acid eating away at his skin and lungs, dissolving him cell by cell. If he stayed here too long, perhaps nothing would be left of him. What's the problem, he ventured at last. Magic not working out for you. It appears to be working perfectly, Francis answered. But the results are confusing. Asante walked 10 steps to where the curb was replaced with oozing honeycomb in the shape of a foot. She shook her head and turned back. The problem is, according to the charm, we're surrounded by the network. This whole area is the network, apparently. Liam peered into the cup, but all he saw was some muddy water. The work they've done is everywhere around us. The people, Francis corrects him. According to this, there should be a network person here, where this honeycomb is. And there should have been another on the last block with the bicycle. The one covered with hair, Liam had remarked on it. In another setting, it would have made a memorable shampoo commercial. The very one. Francis kneeled down next to the honeycomb foot and prodded it, then took out a glass tube and collected a sample with a long, thin spoon. There's no place that these readings seem to be centralized, Asante told him. Which is how I'd expected to find the network's headquarters, a concentration of all of them working together. Maybe they left, after all, Liam suggested. They're idiots, to be sure, but not the kind that would enjoy turning into a part of the landscape. Maybe you're only seeing pieces of what they left behind. Frances put her equipment back in her bag. Then perhaps we should go from one piece to another, she said, until we found them all. Perhaps one of them will give us a clue if we examine them more closely. So much for being efficient, Liam said, rubbing his finger. The Lancet had left the tip feeling bruised. Efficient, Asante said. Asante said, use for when you have more than one option. Sal's knuckles ached from knocking on doors, and still she knocked. Just because the people in the pub had been whatever, that didn't mean the whole town was. And there was a lot of ground left to cover. Even a small town is big when you're trying to knock on every door in six hours or less. Not that it seemed likely to do anybody a lick of good. Besides that hive collective in the pub, they hadn't found even a single survivor yet. But that didn't mean there weren't any to be found, right? She reminded herself yet again, there was a lot of town to cover. And maybe some people had escaped Middlecombe already. Maybe they weren't finding anybody alive because all of them had had the sense to run away. And again, she thought about tornadoes and tornado eaters. Sometimes people didn't want to run away, even if they could. She thought about a restaurant made of meat, and two girls and a man trapped in an apartment overgrown with hair and flesh. Sometimes people couldn't run away, even if they were alive. She knocked harder this time. The sound echoed down the empty street, and then settled into silence again. Manchu's knock echoed back a moment later. And then they heard the bell the church calling its congregants in for services. 
The three of them broke into a run toward the noise, avoiding the places where the cobblestones had turned into eyeballs, skipping over the river of ichor spurting from a gnarled mass that may have once been a fire hydrant. They followed the sound from one pretzel-curved road to another, looking for the source of the tolling bell. It fell silent by the time they found the entrance, but they knew without question that they had the right place. The church tower remained unaltered by magic, but the rest of the church was a patchwork of weathered stone and black feathers, subtly twitching as if irritated by the breeze. Judging from the rough stonework and the architecture, before it had been in feathered, the church had probably been standing there for five or six hundred years, perhaps longer. Such a shame. The roof of the church stirred as if it were a wing that might unfurl, then stilled. Manchu ducked his head to avoid looking. He banged on the heavy wooden door, just ordinary wood, miracle of miracles. A voice called from inside, salty and rough-hewn like the church itself. Who are you? I am Father Manchu. We've been sent from the Vatican. We're here to help. The door groaned open. The priest was a fat man with a boxer's nose and a model's lips. Father Kilpatrick, he said. He shook Manchu's hand. From the Vatican, you say. Do you know what's going on? He jutted out his lower lip. Is it the end times? Manchu shook his head. Not on my watch, he said. This is a more local phenomenon. Father Kilpatrick leaned hard on the post of the door. Oh, thank the Lord. Come in, come in, he said. Tell me what you know. The inside of the church was completely untouched by magic, possibly because the altar was hung with an enormous silver cross, to all appearances as old as the church itself. And the church was old, indeed, but well-loved by its congregation. The pews were a bit scratched, the floor cracked in places. Banners hung from the rafters, probably fabulously historical, judging by how they were barely rags. For all that, the place was immaculately kept, not a speck of dust on the windows, not a single scrap of paper on the floor. A pair of angels trumpeted salvation in stained glass on either side of the sanctuary. Sal stared at them, trying to find some resemblance to Aaron, the one angel she'd met. Something about the eyes, perhaps, but it was just as likely she was imagining it. She turned her attention to the small congregation present. The priest was far from alone. There were eight other people assembled in the little church, a pair of older ladies, a couple of younger fishermen, an extremely pregnant young woman holding a napping toddler on her hip, and some backpack-laden tourists having the hiking vacation of a lifetime. They were a very long way from Hong Kong. Every one of them was alert, watching Manchu and glancing at one another for reassurance. Better, none of them looked to be permanently attached to the furniture. Sal crouched to pretend to check her shoelaces so she could hide her face for a moment. She waffled from high to low. There were survivors. They'd found survivors. Only nine, out of a town of, what was the population, several hundred? So few, so few but they could still save somebody, and that was worth something. It took her a moment to regain her equilibrium and put her game face back on. No place for feelings on the job, but thank God there was a job to do, after all. When she stood back up, the conversation had already passed over the introductions. What happened here? Menchu asked, or do you even know? Kilpatrick spread his hands wide as supplicant. Wish we did. The first I learned anything was going on was uh, this morning, around about seven. When Mrs. Graham here asked me to call on her sister, he nodded at one of the old ladies. Mrs. Graham chimed in, the words gushing out of her like a popped water balloon. Aaron turned up as part of her bed and I tried to wake her this morning. Nothing but sheets and coverlets all the way down. 
I thought to bring in the father, you see, because he didn't seem properly medical to me, and I, I thought it must be devils. And it was devils, right? The work of Satan's own dark hand. She was triumphant at being right, to the exclusion of being concerned for her sister. Manchu cleared his throat, but before he had to come up with a diplomatic answer, his local counterpart had swept back in. After that, Father Kilpatrick said, we started hearing similar stories from all over town, and worse cars being sucked into the town square, a freak wave turned Mrs. O'Shea into a statue made of coal, furniture sprouting wings and flying away. I hear Rory Duncan like to melt her poor little face off. But she was such a pretty girl, too. He made the sign of the cross, and then a few more times, for good measure. The local congregation crossed themselves as well. The Hong Kong tourists hung back, whispering to each other. Do you have any idea where this all started? This all focused resolutely on solving the problem. Some place where things happen first or are worst. I don't suppose you have anyone in town who collects old, rare books? Father Kilpatrick shook his head, then looked to the rest of the survivors. There's been some visitors at the bed and breakfast, Mrs. Graham said. She turned a frosty gaze toward the tourists. Not foreign folk, but strangers all to get out. Anna tells me they stay in their room like honeymooners, no hiking or nothing, but they brought a great lot of boxes inside. She said she saw all manner of wires and such like they was deep into the real filth, tying one another up and so on. Kept blowing her fuses, too, she said. Sal blinked a minute, trying to incorporate this dirty speculation into the image she had formed of Mrs. Graham as a kindly busybody. The network was at the bed and breakfast, she said, so that's where Liam and Asante and Francis should be looking. We have to tell them. Manchu flinched. There's no way to reach them. We'll have to hope they can find the right place on their own. For now, we need to focus on this. He nodded at the nine survivors. Can you help us? The pregnant woman asked. She held the sleeping child's head tight to her shoulder. You sure you don't want me to hold her, Lizzie? You should be taking it easy. One of the fishermen hovered beside her. I'm fit enough if we just get away from here, Lizzie snapped. I can rest when we're safe. Sal looked back toward the church doors, safely shut behind them. We can help you if you come with us. We can protect you from anything prowling the streets. Once we get you over the town border, you should be in the clear. Sounds as good a plan as any, Mrs. Graham said, dubious. So we just uh, walk out through all that madness? That's the idea. Follow me, Sal said, and please go as fast as you can. Three. Book burners. The voice was thready and attenuated, like a radio station coming from a thousand miles away. Liam jumped, fists up, but no imminent danger presented itself. Just the same old Middlecombe Street. Here, the cobblestones had grown into mighty boulders of ice with shadows flitting inside of them. Asante frowned into her copper cup, navigating around the hazard in search of some evidence of the network's presence. Frances tipped her head to the side. Did you hear that? Book burners came the voice again. Francis scanned their environs, then did a double take. There, she said, clutching her knuckles to her mouth. She pointed at the ground a dozen feet ahead of them. There was a face embedded in a grassy patch of garden, the fleshy edges quivering loose like a whisper at the edge of a candle flame. Liam crouched over it, staring. A pair of watery blue eyes stared back. They looked awfully familiar. 
Opie? Who is Opie? Francis asked. One of my old friends from the network, Liam growled. One of the ones who kidnapped me and have nipped at our heels every step we take in the last few months. The lashes fluttered, the lips curled open. Liam, it is you. Opie's voice was reedy, but definitely his own. Liam, I- I'm so glad you're here. A set of fingers a few yards away wriggled at them. Liam couldn't shake the idea that those were Opie's fingers. They were about the right shade of pallid. Maybe that honeycomb had been Opie's foot, too. Maybe Asante's copper cup of Liam's blood had been leading them all around to various parts of Opie the whole time. Why, fuck, you're glad I'm here. Liam stood on one foot and hovered the other boot over Opie's face. Wait, stop, Opie wailed. Give me a reason. Liam wished he had a cigarette just to flick ashes at Opie while he was helpless. Opie coughed. I've uh, had time to reflect on my choices, he said. And I have a few regrets. Liam, out of anyone, you should understand where I am right now. Francis took out her sampling tool and used it to prod at the edge of Opie's face. It peeled up from the dirt like a piece of fruit leather. Ow, Jesus, that hurts, cut it out. Opie whined, listen, I wanna talk to you. Maybe we can strike a bargain. Asante squatted next to Opie, gathering her skirt at her ankles. It looks like you're in a bit of a situation, aren't you? Not the strongest negotiating position. Opie turned a mottled apoplectic red. You'd think that, book burner, but I know things that you don't. I've seen things you can't imagine. Look around you at what I've done. Francis pulled a pair of tweezers out of her bag and plucked one of Opie's eyebrow hairs. Ow, stop it. Why in the world would you do this to yourself on purpose? Francis stared at Opie's face with mingled revulsion and fascination. I didn't, Opie hissed. This wasn't the plan at all. Asante leaned in closer. So what was the plan? Magic computing, unlocking the secrets of ultimate power. Liam got the feeling Opie had said those words a thousand times, but never before with such bitterness. We've been building this system for years now and scaling up and up. Each time we ironed it out a little more and got closer and closer to the dream. Liam, you were there at the start of it all, but you have no idea how far we've come, how much we learned. Opie beamed with pride, an expression that curled the edges of his face in unsettling ways. Oh, and it didn't work. Serves you right, Liam snorted. No, no, it, it went perfectly. Even in his current predicament, Opie took on a fresh layer of arrogant scorn. We do good work, Liam. You shouldn't know that. Liam raised his boot over Opie's face again. Spill it, numbnuts, before I get to feeling stumpy. Wait, stop. The thing is, it worked. It's just that there were unanticipated side effects. So we see, Francis murmured. She placed Opie's eyebrow hair in a plastic specimen bag. Now she pulled out a small packet of cotton swabs. Asante laid a hand on Liam's knee to steer his foot away from Opie. Let's start over from the beginning, Opie. My name's not Opie, you know, he said. It's Roger. Do I have kindness to a dying man and at least call me by my proper name? Roger. Opie took a rattling breath. The goal of the network is to harness the world we live in to channel magical power. Like, it's turning the fabric of reality into a magical circuit board, right? Everything in this little town is a part of it. The shifting of the tides, which flowers the bees go to, even the brains and bodies of all the people here are caught up in it. 
a massive hive mind operating behind the scenes. That's amazing, Francis breathed. It's miserable, Opie snapped. All this oneness and acceptance for each other. You can't control the hive, you're just a part of it. Every second I can feel myself slipping away. Do you know what it's like to completely lose yourself? Liam frowned. As it happens, yeah. Francis held a cotton swab near Opie's lips. Hey, do you think you could open? Asante cut her off. How, Opie? It, Roger, tell us how you did it. Wait, this is a bargain, not a surrender. I, I'm telling you a lot, and I need you to promise me something in exchange. Let me guess, Liam said. You want us to bring you with us when we leave, rescue you. Nah, I wish, but nah. A man full tear leaked from the corner of Opie's eye and trickled into the dirt beside him. It's uh, too late for me. Too late for everyone here. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hi, I'm Gary Witter, BAFTA award-winning writer of The Book of Eli and co-writer of Rogue One, A Star Wars Story. And now I've created an all-new science fiction adventure that I hope you'll join me for. Gundog is a nine-episode limited series that tells the story of Dakota Bregman, a young woman who has grown up following the invasion of Earth by a brutal race of alien machines known as the Mech. When Dakota stumbles across a mysterious map that could hold the secret to humanity's liberation, she embarks on a dangerous journey across an alien-occupied America, one that leads her to an amazing discovery, a long-lost prototype war machine known as a gundog. Now Dakota must confront a legacy she never knew she had and embrace the warrior she was meant to be, facing down impossible odds and an overwhelmingly superior enemy in the hope of sparking a new flame of human resistance. Gundog is performed by Shannon Woodward of HBO's Westworld and Troy Baker, star of The Last of Us, with an original soundtrack by Grammy-nominated composer Austin Wintory. Gundog is available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can learn more at realm.fm. Bookburners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or at realm.fm.